This is the first of what will be many episodes about the history of Prague and the Czech lands, specifically central Bohemia. We're going to start at the beginning, which means we have to go way, way, way back. A city is much more than just a collection of buildings. It's a location, it's a history, it's a culture, it's ideas and ideals, and a city is also, most importantly, the people in it. This is Prague Times, the podcast that takes a look at the city of Prague in the Czech Republic. With more than a thousand years of history, there's a lot to talk about. We'll talk about the past of Prague, but we'll also talk about the city as it is today, future plans for the city, and much more. It's Prague then, Prague now, and Prague later. And this is Prague Times. Slavs first entered Central Europe around 500 CE, at the beginning of what's known as the pre-classical history period, which is basically 500 to 1500, sometimes known as the Middle Ages, sometimes known as the Dark Ages. And they're called the Dark Ages because we don't have very good records, not because the church had suppressed knowledge and things like this. So they're dark because we aren't really sure. So these early beginnings are filled with murky suppositions and misinformation and mythologies. But we'll do our best to reconstruct what may or may not have happened. Now, of course, when the Slavs got here, there were already people living here. We know that there were Paleolithic cultures going back two and a half million years ago. Probably the first people were a group of Homo erectus, known as the Acheulean, who came in from Africa when the Sahara started getting hot and becoming a desert. There were certainly Neanderthals here, because we found tons of Neanderthal stuff, especially in the Palava, which is a huge limestone outcropping in southern Moravia. The Aurignacian people were probably the first Homo sapiens in the region, probably came from the Levant somewhere between 43,000 and 26,000 years ago. Bronze Age occurs in Europe between 3200 and 600 BCE, and then the Iron Age kicks in around 850 BCE. So the Celts were a people that came out of this late Bronze Age culture known as the Urnfield culture, which existed between 1300 and 750 BCE. In Central Europe, the biggest collection of them was uh, now known as the Hallstatt culture. This is Hallstatt, that very pretty little lakeside town just outside of Salzburg. The height of their culture was probably 750 to 450 BCE. They were farmers, they were metal workers, they worked in bronze, silver, gold. Later, when the Iron Age kicked in, iron. Uh, they were salt miners, and they certainly spoke an early form of Celtic. Celts spread out all through Europe, Germany, France, getting to the British Isles and Ireland around 500 BCE. And by the 4th century BCE, Celts had certainly come to Bohemia. There is a story that way back in specifically 1306 BCE, there was a Celtic king named Boiva who settled in the area of modern-day Prague, and he named his settlement Boyachem, which that story says is where the word Bohemian comes from. But there's a more likely explanation. 4th century BCE, Celts come into Bohemia. This is around the same time down in Italy, the Roman Republic is being founded, and classical Greece is going on, 4th and 5th centuries BCE. There's one Celtic tribe called the Boii, B-O-I-I, and they basically had two branches. There was uh, one south of the Alps in the Holstadt area, around the Veneto in Italy, north of Venice, 
and then another branch north of the Alps here in central Bohemia. It's thought that the Latin word that eventually becomes the word Bohemia meant home of the boy. Some think the word boy may come from an old Celtic word, either meaning cow or warrior. So they were herders or they were warriors or maybe they were cow warriors. I don't know. There's an old Czech story that in the 5th century CE, a group of warriors defeated a large group of enemies at a hill called Blanik, which is about 60 kilometers southeast of Prague. They decided that they would rest inside the hill where one day that passes for them is a year for us on the outside. And when Bohemia most needed them was most in peril, a hole would open in the rock and they would come out, defeat the enemy, and Bohemia would be safe and prosperous. You have to wonder where the heck they were in 1620 or in 1938 when the Nazis invaded. Does that mean that even worse things are still going to happen here in Bohemia? God, I hope not. Anyway, the boy come here. About 300 years after they settle here, about the first century BCE, this is around the time that Julius Caesar basically ends the Roman Republic down in Italy and starts the dictatorship, Germanic tribes start to cause all kinds of trouble, and they push the Celts out of basically most of continental Europe, so all they have left is Ireland and the British Isles. In Bohemia, those Germanic tribes were the Lombards, uh, from northern Italy, the Quadi people who mainly moved into Moravia, and the Marcomanni people who mainly came here into Bohemia. There's an old story that there was a uh, Germanic king, early Germanic king or tribal chieftain named Marabode, who was king of the Marcomanni and Swabian people, who founded a capital called Zavist, which is in modern-day Prague, right down, right near the southern edge of the modern city. Czech archaeologists sometimes call this Zavist area the Czech Atlantis because all records and traces of the kingdom are gone. We do know that there were certainly settlements. There's a map from the 2nd century CE that shows a Germanic city named Kasurgis very near where Prague now sits, as well as settlements in Cheskabudjevica, Pisek, Litomirzice, Mlada Boleslav, Kolin, Yihlava, just outside Znoimo, Pcheslav, Brno, Vishkov, Koitin, and several other places. Under Julius Caesar, around 15 BCE, the Roman Empire really starts expanding, but they don't really get into Central Europe. They get as far north as a military camp that they name Vindobona, which means white base or white bottom, which later becomes the city of Vienna. And they do manage to get a teeny bit further north towards the Palava in southern Moravia, where they establish a small fort called Mushov. You can actually see it as you're driving from Austria past Mikulov. This is where they introduce winemaking to this little region. I mean, we're not talking about far. We're talking about 10, 20 kilometers inside the Austrian border. But that's why the Moravians make wine. So it's Celts, Germans. In the 3rd century CE, West Germanic Franks some of whom claim to be descendants of the Trojans, expand into Pannonia. Pannonia, it got its name because of a mythological founder of it called Pan, P-A-N, so Pan, Pannonia. So the old story goes that Pan had three sons, Czech, Rus, and Lech, eldest to youngest, and their name for their homeland was Harvati. So one day, the three brothers went out hunting, following different animals, and they ended up going so far, they just decided to settle there. 
Rus went to the east and founded the Rus people. Lech went north and founded the Polish people, who used to be known as the Lechites, and Czech went west, settling Rzyp Hill and the Czechs. The Czech version of the story actually only has two brothers, Czech and Lech, totally skipping out on Rus. Their story goes that in their homeland, numerous battles with the Germanic tribes made it unsafe, so they decided they'd take a bunch of people and settle someplace safer. There are also some versions that say that maybe Czech was accused of murder and kind of had to leave anyway. They went off towards the setting sun and they got to the Bohemian hill of Rzyp. Czech said, hey, this is a great area. Here is where I and my people will settle. And Lech said, it's not cold enough. We're going to keep going north and east. And he ended up settling Poland. Interestingly, there was a Bohemian tribal ruler named Lech who died somewhere around 805 CE who had been sent by Charlemagne to calm down the Slavs and ended up taking over. So maybe that's where that all comes from. We don't know. So anyway, the Slavs came to Central Europe and... 100 to 150 years later, two or maybe three brothers founded the Czech, Polish, and maybe Rus people. So the Proto-Slavs came from somewhere in the Ukraine, spread out during the migration period or the Great Migration of Peoples. This all happens right around the time the Western Roman Empire is falling into decline. This is sometimes referred to as the Barbarian Invasions, when the Roman Empire finally collapses and all that's left is Constantinople in the east. So the Roman Empire collapses around 476 or so. Germans, Huns, and Slavs all sort of feast on the corpse of the Roman Empire, but mainly it's Germans, and they're all busy plundering, 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 so they kind of leave the Slavs alone. Unfortunately, at the same time, here come the Avars. They started off in the Aral Sea region, so they're sort of the successors of the Huns. They ride horses into combat, they have iron swords, so they're really quite formidable. They first came west because the Byzantine Empire hired them as mercenaries, and then they said, hey, we kind of like it here. So they stayed and ended up founding the Avar Khaganate, which is ends up covering a huge swath of land from bits of western Turkey, Bulgaria, Serbia, Romania, Hungary. They come up into constant conflict with Germanic tribes, especially the Franks, and Slavs, especially in southern Moravia. So it's around the time that this is the setup. Slavs, Germans, Germans feasting on the corpse of Rome and Avars coming from the south and the east that this grandfather Czech story starts. By 530 CE, the Slavs have started to expand following the Voltava and Laba rivers. And by the 5th to 8th centuries, they had certainly built fortified towns in the Sharka Valley, which is now in Prague 6, Butovica, which is now in Prague 5, and Levihradets, which is just outside Prague near Rostoki. The Avars are constantly attacking southern Moravia and elsewhere. And there's a Frankish arms merchant who started selling weapons to the Slavs to help them fight the Avars because he doesn't like them either. He realizes that one of the problems with the Slavs is that there's such a bunch of different little tribes. They fight with each other as well. And if they could just unite and get organized, maybe they could get rid of the Avars once and for all. So he organizes them under himself. And his name is Samo. The story of Samo's empire is still a little bit murky, but this is the first uniting of the various Slav tribes, mainly as protection. Samo's empire lasts from 631 to 658 CE, so just 27 years. But it includes Bohemians, Moravians, Silesians, uh, Western Slovaks, Sorbians, Sorbia is this little Slavic area near where Germany and Poland meet, and other small Slavic tribes. There are lots and lots of them in the area. 
By the end of his empire, Samo has all this land, all the way down to Slovenia, bits of lower Austria, a little bit of northern Italy around Udin. He's got western Slovakia to the east as far as Nitra. He's got Gerlitz in Lusatia, which is also known as Sorbia. He even has bits of Saxony in the west. The main thing is, let's deal with this Avar problem. And they finally defeat them in 626. Samo dies in 658 or 659. And then the Avars, realizing that the Slavs probably won't stay united, reoccupy some of their lands and incorporate them into their territory, specifically southern Slovakia. In non-Avar Central Europe, a new class sort of elite class rises up around the end of the 7th century in the Slavic lands, almost certainly taking inspiration from the Avars, which are these armed warrior horsemen. Eventually, this will become the Knights of the Middle Ages. Moravia and Nitra both had principalities, continued the war against the Avars, and they were trying to, as much as they could, keep the social and political structures that Samo had created alive. And this becomes the basis for the great Moravian Empire which we'll talk about another time. So, brief recap. Celts come into the area. Germans drive the Celts out. Avars cause lots of trouble. Germans cause lots of trouble. Slavs are in the area. They're hanging around. Samo unites everybody together. Then he dies. Now we have to go. We know that Samo existed, and these are the right dates. But now we have to go back to mythology. And we come to Krok. Supposedly he lived in the early 700s. He's often called the first judge of the Bohemian tribes. Some people think the stories about Krok are actually based on Samo. Others say he was a different guy who carried on Samo's ideas. Still others say that he was based on a Polish prince named Krok or Krakus, who was a cobbler who ended up killing the Wawel dragon and as a result suddenly found himself a prince. He went on to found Wawel Castle and eventually the city of Krakow was named after him, Krak, Krakow. There's also a version of the story that says when forefather Czech or grandfather Czech was dying, he sent word to his brother Lech in Poland to come rule after him, but Lech didn't want to. He liked Poland and he liked where he'd settled, so he recommended this Krok guy instead. So anyway, Krok, leader of a tribe based somewhere around Klodno. Word gets out about how fair and wise he is and so other tribes start to come to him for judgments in their disputes. They end up giving him the right and authority to judge legal issues, and, and basically he was a political figure that people listened to and obeyed. And he almost certainly was using or keeping alive at least some of the political and social structures that Samo had started. He had three daughters, and one of those daughters was Libusha. So in the early to mid-700s, about the same time in the British Isles that Beowulf and the Book of Kells are being written, Libusha rules the Bohemians. So Krok had three daughters. Kazi, who was good and a healer, and she lived in Kazin, which is right at the current southwest edge of the Prague city limits. Tata, who was kind of wicked and she was a sorceress and she lived in Tetin, which is near Baron. And Libusha, who was very good and very chaste, and she was a prophetess. She could see the future. She probably lived in Libushin, which is just outside Klodno, though. There is this version of the story that the legend of Libusha all happens at Vishahrad, 
And this is the version that Czechs tell their kids. None of this is true since Vyšehrad wasn't founded until the 10th century CE after Prague Castle was uh, built. Libusha had a vision of, quote, a great city whose glory will touch the stars. After she had her vision, she said, go to a hill north along the river on the other side of the river and look for a man who's starting to build a house. And wherever his doorway is laid out, the prach or threshold of his doorway, that's where you should build the castle. In another version of the story, which is about the mythical founding of Prague, it says her vision told her to find a man, quote, making the best use of his teeth at noon. So some of her guys go off and they find a man up on what's now Hradchani Hill sawing wood for his new home. Instead of having lunch like everybody else is doing, he's being industrious. A saw has teeth. They ask him what he's making. He says the prach for his house. And that's where they decided to build Prague Castle. Probably that neither of these is even close to the truth. The word Prach today may mean threshold, but way back when it meant either Ford, which is a shallow place where you can cross a river, or Rapids. So the name of the city, Praha, probably comes from where people used to cross the river, which is probably somewhere around the Charles Bridge now. Anyway, Libusha was judged the wisest of the three daughters, and so she gets to rule. People would often come to her for judgments in the disputes, just like they did with her father, and everybody always left feeling like they had won. That's how wise she was. But then one day, two neighbors had an argument about where the dividing line between their land should be, and she made her decision in favor of the younger one. And then the older man got very, very angry and kind of just went off saying women are stupid and they can't make reasonable decisions. Quote, long-haired but short on brain. That's what he says about women. Obviously, he's some kind of a misogynist and a really sore loser. He says women should sow but not rule or judge. Obviously, if he'd won the judgment, he'd be singing a different tune. Everyone listening is shocked, but the guy's so mean about it, no one has the stones to step up and defend her. So Libusha, because she's wise, realizes that other people may also secretly have this opinion, and this could end up being quite troublesome in the long run. She tried to explain that her judgments are based on compassion, but the man says that's just another word for weakness. So it becomes clear to her that maybe people want to live in a stricter society, not a staff of oak, but an iron rod. So she says, okay, you all choose a husband for me and I'll marry him and he will rule instead. And then she goes into seclusion and her sisters come to spend the evening with her while they await the people's decision in the morning. The next day, she gathers everybody together. All of you know why I called you together. You did not appreciate the freedom I gave you. So the gods inspired me to tell you that I shall rule you no longer. You want a man, a duke, who will take away your children to serve him, who will choose the best of your cattle and horses for taxes according to his own personal whims and desires. You want to serve a master and pay for it, and so far, you have never had to do this. In return, you will not then have to be so ashamed of having a woman ruler. So be it. Go ahead and choose a duke, but do it wisely and do it carefully, because it is easy to put someone in power, but it is very hard to get them out of power. Well, they don't have a candidate. So she kind of sits there for a little bit. And then she says, but if you wish, I will choose for you. <laughs> right? She's going to choose her own replacement. They say, yeah, yeah, that's great. Yes, you're so wise. We don't want you to rule us anymore. But yes, please choose who should, who should rule in your place. So she goes into one of her trances. And she says, in a small village named Stadica, 
which is about 10 kilometers southwest of Ustinad Labem, there is a plowman with two oxes, one brown with a white head and the other brown with white on its back and hind legs. His name is Pshemesl, and he should be my husband. So, take my white horse. When the horse stops next to a plowman and neighs, that will be him. Also, he will be eating off of a table made of iron, and he has a broken sandal. So, there's no way they can grab the wrong guy. He'll be eating at a certain kind of table. He's got a broken sandal. The horse will stop next to him, and he's got these two cows. They go there. And, because she's always right, boom, they find the guy. So they tell him, hey, you're going to go marry Libusha down in Prague and uh, and become ruler. He says, okay, why not? He's a free peasant, so it's not like he's bound to a liege lord. He goes down, he sees her, they both kind of fall in love at first sight. They get married and Pshemisl, the plowman, becomes the ruler. Libusha and Pshemisl have three sons, but only Nezamisl survives into adulthood. The other two sons die. Nezamisl goes on and founds basically the Pshemisl dynasty. Well, Pshemisl was actually a pretty good choice. The name actually means he who thinks about things first, and he turned out to be a pretty wise and thoughtful ruler. To remind himself of his humble origins and to help him kind of mentally keep his feet firmly on the ground, he always wore his peasant shoes, even when wearing the royal robes. Wearing such shoes became one of the hallmarks of most of the rulers of the Pshemusli dynasty. Also, around sometime in the 700s, the first real settlement happens in Prague, which is in what's now Malastrana. Elsewhere in Europe, Charles the Great or Charlemagne becomes King of the Franks in 768, King of the Lombards in 774, and then Emperor of the Romans in 800, being now the first recognized pan-European ruler since the collapse of the Roman Empire. He's often called the Father of Europe, and what he ends up creating will eventually become the Holy Roman Empire. During his push to unite all of Western and Central Europe, he really, really, really wants the Slavs to get Christianized. The Carolingian Franks, where he comes from, basically from 768 to 814, really start exerting a lot of influence over the Czech lands. Sidebar, the Maidens' War. Now remember, when Libusha gave up her right to rule and put it in charge of men, not everybody was happy about this. A fierce warrior named Vlasta led a rebellion against Przemysl, founding a castle to use as her base of operations. Legend says this was Djevin Castle, but that seems unlikely since that's near Bratislava in Slovakia. But wherever it was, it was probably not very far from Prague. So she's a great warrior. Przemysl was worried, but the men all laughed. Ha ha, now we have a man in charge and women are no threat. We're bigger and stronger. But of course, women are a weakness for men. Vlasta's main strategy was to use her most beautiful soldiers and warriors to entice men, luring them back to the stronghold, where would they, they would then be ambushed and killed. Her main lieutenant was a beautiful woman named Sharka, and she tricked one of the men's great leaders, Stirad. Stirad and his men were patrolling when they came across Sharka tied to a tree. She said that some women wanted to go back to the men and they had betrayed her and tied her there, leaving a horn, which is how you call for help, and a jug of mead just out of reach just to torment her. So they laugh and untie her and she shares the mead with them in thanks, but of course, it had all been a trap. The mead was drugged 
The men all fell asleep. Sharka then blew her horn to summon her warriors. They killed all the men except for Stirad, who they brought back to the castle stronghold. They tortured him for information and then killed him. All of this happened out at Divaka Sharka, out in Prague 6, that hill behind the McDonald's. Well, when the men heard about this, they just freaked out. And every time they saw a woman, no matter who she was on the roads, they attacked her. This really infuriated Vlasta, who kind of lost her cool, started thinking with emotions instead of strategy, and attacked the men's castle, which maybe was a Vishotan, but probably wasn't. And the men won the battle. Vlasta was killed. Devin Castle was razed to the ground. And ever since then, men have been in control. The Seven Mythical Princes of Bohemia. As I said, so Libusha and Przemysl have three sons, but only one survives. And he is the first of the seven mythical princes of Bohemia. Unless you count Przemysl as the first one, in which case he's the second one. We don't really have very much information. Again, this is all rumor, speculation, and mythology. There's also some thought that these seven princes also gave their names to the days of the week, and that would be the case for quite a while until the current system came into place. Now, Nezamisl was kind of an anti-Pshemisl. Pshemisl means guy who thinks about things in advance, and Nezamisl means unpremeditated or unthinking. So he's more rash, he's more impulsive. In the day of the week scheme, he represented Sunday, the day you're not supposed to think, but relax and be with friends and family. After Christianization, this becomes Nedjela, which means the day of not doing, a day of no work, you just worship God. His son is Manata, which is an old word for he who doesn't forget. So I guess he had a good memory. He ends up representing Monday. Monday over time becomes Pondjeli, which means the day after Nedjela or the day after not doing. The third prince, his son, is Voyen, from Voina, meaning soldier-like. This eventually becomes Utari, from the old Czech word Pterzina, which meant second. His son is the fourth prince, Venislav, which meant either maybe prophet or maybe intrinsic. He represented Wednesday. Wednesday turns into Streda, which means middle. His son is the fifth prince, Kresomisl, which means igniting of the mind or lightning or maybe strike the lightning of the mind, something like that. It's interesting, he represents Thursday in the old scheme of things, and in English, Thursday is Thursday, who is also the god of lightning. This eventually becomes Stvartek, which means fourth. Now, Kresomisl found silver mines, and as a result, he was the most powerful of all the seven princes. There's one story about him that goes, there was a man named Horimir, who was a local leader from somewhere around Baron, who knew a famine was coming, asked for more food for his men, was told, no, you'll take your wages and like it. So in anger, he destroyed a bunch of mining equipment. So Kresomisl sentences him to death. As a last wish, he says, can I take one last ride on my loyal horse, Shemi? Now, the horse was very, very intelligent. So when he got on it, it knew what was going on. He got on Shemik's back, and Shemik leapt off of the rocks atop Visharad, which again, it wasn't Visharad, it was someplace else, probably. Anyway, leapt off. They made it across the river. Horimir was saved, but Shemik, who, you know, had kind of used his own body to cushion the fall and then swim across the river, he was very, very badly wounded and he wasn't going to make it. This is a super smart horse because it could talk. And as it's dying, Shemik says, Hey, Horimir, build me a tomb so people remember me. 
He does. And the tomb is actually at Neumnyateli, which is about 40 kilometers southwest of Prague. Kremisil's son is Neklon. Neklon means peaceful. He gets associated with Friday. Friday ends up becoming Patek, which means fifth. There's also a legend about him. Vratislav was the prince of the Luchans. Luchans were a Slavic people that lived somewhere up near Ustinad Labem around Zatets. So Vlastislav and the Luchans besieged Neklon at his seat in Levihradets, which is about three kilometers north of Prague. Now, Neklon didn't want a war, so he sent his second guy, a great warrior named Tyr, to go talk to Vlastislav, but wearing Neklon's armor. So Vlastislav would think it was Neklon. Of course, he attacked, thinking Neklon to be a wimp, but haha, it's Tyr, and he's a very good, very good fighter. So a battle ensues at Tursko, and it's very fierce. It lasts a whole day. Now, Luchans could control animals, and thousands of birds and dogs and wolves fought with them. In the battle, Tyr killed Vlastislav, whose soul flew out of his mouth and got stuck in the branches of the trees. But Tyr, during the battle, lost his horse and was himself killed. Nonetheless, the Czechs took the day. It was said that 20,000 men took part in what would later be known as the Lutsko War. That was about 10% of the entire population of Bohemia at the time. Despite ordering the war, Neklon wasn't really a war guy. So after the Lutsko War, he took in Vlasislav's now orphan son Zbislav, as well as the only man who survived the war, a man named Durink, who had escaped the battleground with the help of a witch. During the first winter, Durink cut a hole in the frozen river ice and told Zbislav he saw a fish in the water there. So when Zbislav bent over to look at it, Durink killed him, cut his head off, and brought it to Neklon, thinking, hey, I just killed your last enemy, so that's awesome for me, right? He said, hey, what's my reward going to be? Neklon was not pleased with this and cried out, choose death, that's my reward. Durnik realized he'd made a terrible mistake, he feels terrible, and he hangs himself from an alder tree, and those trees are now known as Durnik alders. The seventh and last mythical prince is Hostivit, which means welcome guests. This becomes Saturday, which is Sobota, which is Sabbath. Uh, as I said, sometimes he's left out of the lineup, and Neklon is considered the last of the seven princes if Przemysl is considered the first. We have no records of these people. We don't know if these are just stories or if they're based on real individuals or not. Back in actual recorded history, the Franks under Charlemagne slapped the Avars around for quite some time, and by 803, the Avars are pretty much ended as a threat. The surviving Avars ask Charlemagne for permission to settle along the Raba River in Pannonia, which is up in modern-day Poland. As I said, swords start to become very popular. The Avars were also very good at taking hostages whom they sold into slavery. And we know that for a fairly long period in the Middle Ages, Prague was a flourishing slave market, mainly run by a group of merchants known as the Rathanites. So those are the murky mythological beginnings of Prague and Bohemia and the Czech people. We're still not on super solid ground, but we do have more information about the next major period in Czech history, and that is the Great Moravian Empire. And that is another episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of Prague Times. If you liked this episode, be sure to like it or share it and tell your friends. 
Check us out on all of our social media platforms for extra goodies as well. Until next time, this has been Prague Times. <laughs>